if you want to grab a seat. And as you make your way back and, and get yourself situated, if you would open up to Zephaniah chapter 1, we, we are going to be in verses 2 through 9 of Zephaniah 1. And as you're, you're flipping in your Bible or you're scrolling on the table of contents on your phone app or whatever the case might be, four books before Matthew, that's where Zephaniah is, four very small books in front of Matthew. Uh, while you get situated, let's pray and then we'll jump in. God, thanks for this morning, for the chance to come and uh, to worship, to declare that you are the only king forever and to lift you high. Lord, I pray that uh, as we spend time in your word this morning and then as we continue in song, God, would our primary interest this morning be uh, to lift you higher and higher and higher, not just in this place, but in our lives and the way that we live. God, I pray that you would speak your truth through your word. Um, God, show us who you are. Show us more clearly or maybe for the first time exactly what it is that you've done for us in Christ. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak the truth of your word in such a way that, uh, God, we feel convicted and challenged, Lord, and then that we would feel empowered by your Spirit to go and to act in obedience to what it is that uh, you display for us this morning from the truth of Zephaniah, God. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I want to start this morning by talking about a uh, kind of a cultural phenomenon, and it's one that's, uh, I think it's more than like 20 seasons long now, and that is The Bachelor and or The Bachelorette. Here's why I want to start with that. It's because the very premise of the show is confusing to me. No one wants to date someone who's dating 24 other people. No one wants to do that. We understand like the exclusivity of relationships and how that should work, and yet, for some reason, America loves to watch this show where one person dates 25 people at the same time. We understand that no one wants to be broken up with on national television because one of the 24 other people was better than them or more suited for this person. And yet, we watch. We understand that in a, in a relationship that is exclusive, where two people are dating one another or two people are engaged, or especially in the context of a covenant relationship like marriage, we understand that to introduce something from the outside into the exclusivity of that relationship would be to bring serious consequences into that relationship. We get all of that, and yet, for some reason, America is just like in love with one person dating 25 people, which seems very foreign. And so on a human level, we understand the exclusivity of relationship. This morning, what we're going to see in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 2 through 9, is that in a theological sense, in a divine sense, the Lord wants exclusive relationship. And he's serious about that. And if you invite something into the exclusivity of that relationship, there are serious, serious consequences. That's what we're going to see this morning. This is, if you weren't here last week, this is the second week where we're jumping into a new series called Major, Our Minor Prophets, Major Truth, where we're looking at two minor prophets, Zephaniah and then Haggai. And we're going to ask three questions every week. What does any given portion of those two books tell us about who God is? How does it remind us or inform us about the gospel? And what does that mean for us today? And so if you want to look with me at Zephaniah 1, verses 2 through 9, I'm going to read it, 
and then we'll jump in and, and look first at what does this tell us about who the Lord is. This is God's word. I will conti- or completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will sweep away people and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place, the names of the pagan priests along with the priests, those who bow and worship on the rooftops to the stars in the sky, those who pledge loyalty to the Lord and also pledge loyalty to Milcom, and to those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated His guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the Lord's officials and the king's sons and all those who are dressed in foreign clothing. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold, who fill their master's house with violence and deceit. There's... God's word through the prophet Zephaniah to his people in Judah in Jerusalem. And this is what we should take away about the Lord and who he is from this passage. And that is that the Lord is exclusive. That is the major truth in our world, in our universe, in human existence. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, exclusive. And he wants relationship with humanity in a manner that is exclusive. And if we miss that or we trample on that, there are serious consequences. And so in verses 2 and 3 of Zephaniah chapter 1, in the beginning of verse 4, we get this strong language. I will completely sweep away everything. I will sweep away people. I will sweep away animals birds of the sky, fish of the sea. I will cut off mankind. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the residents of Jerusalem. I will cut off every vestige of Baal. That's strong imagery. That's intended to be strong imagery. And so three different phrases are used there, that the Lord will sweep away, that he will cut off, and that he will stretch out his hand. Literally, to sweep away means to make an end of. And if you look At verses 2 and 3, and you think back to Genesis, as the Lord is pronouncing that he will sweep away everything, he works in reverse order of creation. In the creation account, the living creatures of the earth are created, fish, then birds, then animals, then people. Here, the Lord says, I will completely sweep away. I will put an end to people, animals, birds, fish. I will undo what I have created. I will completely put an end to it. And as easily as I created it by speaking my word, I will put an end to it. I will sweep it off the face of the planet just as easily. Uh, We got a lot of snow this winter, and a lot of times that snow came in, there was like some sleet, or there was some rain that then froze, and then you got this wet, heavy snow on top, and shoveling was a nightmare. Well, one time we got this nice, light, fluffy snow, and I thought, I'm so sick of shoveling, I'm going to try the leaf blower. I just took the leaf blower out there and I I put an end to that snow. I just swept it away. It was gone. Instead of it taking like 30 minutes to shovel the driveway, it took like two minutes to just sweep everything away. God says, that's what I'm about to do. I will sweep everything away and it'll be like it never happened. Then we're also told, I will cut off. 
I will cut off mankind. I will cut off every vestige of Baal. That literally means to carry out a death sentence, to annihilate. I'll put, I will carry out just judgment. I will execute humanity, mankind. And then the last one is, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the residents of Jerusalem. That phrase, when God says that he's going to stretch out his hand towards something, it's him saying, I will marshal all of my powers and leverage them against something. It's used most poignantly one other time in scripture, and that is in the Exodus account. The Israelites are in slavery to Egypt, and God says to Pharaoh, I will stretch out my hand against you. I will marshal all of my power and leverage it against you, Pharaoh. And then we get the plagues in the Exodus account. When, these, when Zephaniah, when the Lord spoke these words through him and the Israelites heard that, it would have conjured up that image of God summoning all of his cosmic, universal, omnipotent power and leveraging against Egypt on behalf of Israel. But here they would have heard it, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the residents of Jerusalem. And to have thought, He's going to leverage that kind of power now against us. That's what God is saying here. He is exclusive. And if you break the exclusivity of that relationship, there will be punishment. In verses 2 and 3, it's this general statement about humanity, everything off the face of the earth. It's about mankind from the face of the earth. It's in general. In verse 4, it zooms in and it becomes very specific. Jerusalem, Judah, my people. If you just scan your eyes down the page there, verses two through nine. I mentioned this last week. When you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that is the English translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. It gets all capital letters because in the Hebrew, uh, it was written a special way. Y-H-W-H, no vowels. It was written a particular way. So it gets written this particular way in our English translations, and it's used nine times here. Nine different times that the Lord wants to highlight a covenant relationship exclusive with Israel. Yahweh was God's covenant name that he had with his Israelite chosen people. He was to be their God. They were to be his people. Nothing was to infringe or cut in on that. And so nine times here, they get this reminder This is the Lord's declaration. This is Yahweh's declaration. Those who haven't sought the Lord, those who haven't inquired of the Lord, the day of the Lord is near. A covenant relationship has been broken. Think about it in terms of marriage. That's the kind of exclusivity that was to be involved here. God, the God of the universe, was to be Israel's God alone. No one else. And instead... Something else has been introduced into that relationship. Nine reminders of how this covenant relationship was supposed to function, but they have not upheld their end of the bargain. Instead, they've been worshiping other things, which we're going to see in verses 4, 5, and 6. That is what is called idolatry. I want to define idolatry. It's going to be very important as we work our way through the rest of the book of Zephaniah and the book of Haggai. Uh, And here is uh, what I think is a very succinct, clear definition. It comes from an author named Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, 
anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. An idol is anything that you take and you say, this is the most important thing. This is the thing that I'm going to live my life in response to because it ultimately offers me hope. It ultimately offers my life meaning. It's what makes me secure. It's what gives me significance. I'm going to give it highest billing in my life. I'm going to worship that thing. Idolatry is easy to point out in the instance of Israel and what Zephaniah is going to say here because they were literally going to a temple somewhere or they were getting up on their roofs as this says in verse 5 and they were bowing down in worship bowing down in worship to another god bowing down in worship to an image or something I'm I'm willing to guess that for the vast majority or maybe everybody in this room this morning we don't show up to another place of worship and literally get on our knees in another temple and bow down to something What's very obvious when we look at Judah, Jerusalem, the Israelite people is a little more insidious in our hearts today. It takes not a different form, but maybe the right way to say it is a different physical expression. We don't literally bow down to something else. Most of us don't even come into worship here at church and bow down before the cross. We don't physically do that. And yet, idolatry can be just as real for us as it is for the people that Zephaniah is speaking to. And I want to walk that out. So look in verse four. Idolatry can be a direct replacement of the Lord. I will cut off every vestige of Baal from this place. The names of the pagan priests along with the priests. I mentioned last week that this Prophet Zephaniah, he comes and he speaks to the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem in the era of Josiah the king. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. Josiah restores Jerusalem's temple. He leads the people to recommit themselves to the law of God and to renew their covenant with him. And he has the articles of Baal destroyed. This is how it's stated in 2 Kings. Then the king, Josiah, commanded the high priest Hilkiah and the priests of the second rank and the doorkeepers to bring out of the Lord's sanctuary the articles made for Baal, Asherah, and all the stars in the sky. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he did away with all the idolatrous priests the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense at the high places in the city of Judah and across the areas surrounding Jerusalem. They had burned incense to Baal and to the sun, moon, constellations, and all the stars in the sky. Josiah, from an official sort of uh, governmental standpoint, he does away with the worship of these false gods, Baal, Asherah, these stars in the sky. But on a personal level, apparently, that doesn't take effect or isn't complete for all of the individuals. And so what we have are vestiges or remnants of Baal. So there might still be some temples somewhere, some individuals worshiping. We still have the pagan priests who are offering those. There are still people who bow down on their rooftops to the stars in the sky. As a side note, as we go through these minor prophets and you see something about worshiping the stars in the sky or as Second Kings had said, the constellations, the moon, that is a reference to God's 
false gods, lowercase g, gods. In ancient Near Eastern culture, it was believed that the stars in the sky were the kind of embodiment of these false gods, and so there were those who would bow down and worship those. Josiah eliminates all of that, at least from an official standpoint, but apparently it doesn't take place because there are some of these Israelite people who still worship those. So idolatry can be a direct replacement of the Lord. Idolatry can also be an attempt to combine worship, a combination of gods. Look at the end of verse 5. Those who bow down and pledge loyalty to the Lord, but also pledge loyalty to Milcom. When you try to combine two religious belief patterns or you try to combine two religious practices into one thing, the technical term for that is called syncretism. You are trying to synchronize two different types of belief. That's what's being described here. Milcom was an Ammonite god. Uh, The Lord says, I'm going to bring this judgment upon those who pledge loyalty to me, but also to this other god, Milcom. You can't combine those two things. That's idolatry. If you try to add something to the Lord in your relationship with him, you've negated it completely. If you try to add something in, to your relationship with the Lord that's supposed to be exclusive, you've negated it completely. Idolatry can also take the form of turning away from the Lord completely. Look at verse 6. Those who turn back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. There was some segment of the population in Judah and Jerusalem who had just decided, you know what? We're either just going to turn away from God altogether and be atheistic or agnostic in some form, or we're going to seek something else entirely Maybe they're going to seek and inquire, quote-unquote. They're going to give their heart and worship to something that's not religious at all. Maybe they've placed their trust in money or comfort or knowledge and something materialistic. This form of idolatry often makes us the thing that we worship. We turn away from the Lord and we say, ultimately, the thing that's going to give me hope and significance is myself. My skill, my ability, my cleverness, that's where I'm going to place my ultimate hope. In fact, I believe that in the suburban American church, what we typically have when we talk about idolatry is that we have a combining of worship where we've got a lot of people who would come into church on a Sunday morning and they would say, I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. And yet at the fundamental heart level, they also hold on to some belief that they are actually the thing that is going to provide for them. They are where their hope actually lies. That I am the source of my ultimate meaning. I am the source of my significance. I am the source of what is going to bring about any good in my life. And we try to hold both things next to each other in worship. We smash those two things together. And when you try to smash those two things together, the Lord says, you negate the exclusivity of this relationship and judgment is what you deserve. I think that is the normative worship of idolatry that exists in the American church. When we talk about cultural kind of Christianity, consumer sort of Christianity, where a person shows up on church because they think that's the thing that's going to save them, and then they walk out of church at any, after any given service on any given Sunday, and they go about living their life as if there is nothing more ultimate or significant beyond them. What we have is idolatry, and the idol is yourself. What we have is an attempt to mix two things together. When you hear someone talk about the prosperity gospel, 
like a health and wealth sort of thing. What you've got is an attempt to mix together God and who he is, but also uphold some sort of mistaken view of just how wonderful and significant and ultimate humanity is. Ultimately, idolatry is a rejection of the Lord. Always. That's what's happening. The Israelites are rejecting Yahweh to worship Baal. They're rejecting Yahweh in order to bow down to the stars in the sky. They're rejecting Yahweh and giving their loyalty to Milcom. They're rejecting Yahweh and seeking something different. And in response to that, the Lord says through Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is near. That's in verse 7. Zephaniah is going to talk a lot about the day of the Lord. And so I want to just clarify what that is and what that entails. The day of the Lord's mentioned throughout Scripture. It has a particular focus in the prophet Zephaniah. And so what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is a day of just judgment. There will be a total justice and a full display of God's perfect righteousness on the day of the Lord. He will sweep everything away. He will stretch out his hand. He will cut off every vestige of Baal along with the priests and the names of the priests, along with the people who bow down and worship to false gods, along with those who have placed their loyalty in something alongside the Lord, along with those who have turned back from following the Lord. There will be just judgment. And in that day, in that moment, it will be completely fair and no one will argue. We read this today and we think, how could God do that? On the day of the Lord's judgment, it will be completely fair and there will be no questions about whether or not what the Lord is doing is right and fair and good. His righteousness will be entirely on display and no one will argue. The day of the Lord is also a day of loving blessing. There will be an extension of benevolent blessing and this full display of God's mercy. And so while the Lord's just judgment is being poured out on the day of the Lord, there will also be benevolent blessing and the fullness of his mercy will be on display and it will be completely fair and no one will argue about it. God will take center stage in both of those acts. No one is going to look at the Lord in the day of, on the day of the Lord and his just judgment and say, he's being really unfair. No one is going to look at a human on the day of the Lord and say, wow, they must have been really fantastic to get all that blessing. No, it will be obvious. He's completely righteous and just and judging and his justice is good and fair and his blessing is benevolent and it is of grace and it is all about him and not about anything that a human being has done. When God acts in this way on the day of the Lord, everyone, whether they receive judgment or blessing, is going to say, Look at the glory of the Lord. It's unmistakable. It's immissible. You can't dismiss it at all. Third thing about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has both immediate and future fulfillment. When these prophets speak about the day of the Lord, they're talking about something that is going to happen immediately, but they're also talking about something that's going to happen in the distant future from them. The immediate outworking of the prophet Zephaniah's words here happens in 587 BC when the Babylonian army arrived and carried the people of Jerusalem and Judah into exile. That is going to happen and it's immediate to this context. But there's an eschatological, an end times fulfillment to these minor prophets and to the day of the Lord that will take place at the second coming. 
That's typically referred to as the great day of the Lord. And all of humanity will be brought before the judgment seat of God and his judgment will be just. There will be benevolent blessing. No one will question it. There's future and immediate fulfillment to the day of the Lord. Let me illustrate as best I can. I was trying to come up with a good way to kind of articulate this. And the best thing I could come up with is think about when you were a child and uh, you did something wrong. Maybe it was at school. Maybe it was at home. And it was of a particular brand of disobedience that mom simply said, wait till your father gets home. And you started to shudder. Like, can I hide when dad gets home? You, that was like punishment enough in the moment that mom even brought that up, but you knew that something more was coming when dad got home. But that could also have worked in the inverse, at least it did, you know, sometimes in our house when I was growing up, that you would do something at school or something in life or whatever, and it was good. And mom kind of said, oh, I, you know, you should tell that to dad when he gets home. Because there was going to be a moment of like dad being proud and excited and there would be a moment of blessing. And it was just good enough to hear mom say, that thing is exciting enough that we need to tell dad. There was a moment of blessing there, but there was a greater one coming. The day of the Lord. Just judgment, benevolent blessing has both immediate and future fulfillment. Make sense? Let me say a word about verses 8 and 9 here because there are a couple images in verses 8 and 9 that are important as we move forward. There's this day of the Lord coming. He's prepared a sacrifice. He's consecrated his guests. That's verse 7. On, or in verse 8, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the king, or the officials and the king's son, and all who are dressed in foreign clothing. What does that, was it wrong to, for an Israelite to get their clothing from some other country or something? What, what is he talking about there? The kind of poetic imagery there is that I will punish all who have gone outside of this relationship in order to clothe themselves. I will punish all who have sought outside of their covenant relationship provision that only the Lord was supposed to give to them. And then there's verse 9. On that day, I will punish all who skip over the threshold. There are two thoughts about what that means. One is that skipping over the threshold or not stepping on the threshold was an act of reverence that the priests of Baal would do in the temple. They, it was believed that you didn't want to step on that, so you, you stepped over it. You skipped over it. That's one interpretation of that verse. The other comes from the fact that the word threshold is only used in the Old Testament in relation to the temple of the Lord, and that that threshold is what separates the holy spaces from ordinary spaces. And so that what the Lord is saying through Zephaniah here is that I will punish all those who are irreverent in coming into the presence of the Lord. They skip the threshold. They jump over it like it doesn't matter that they've gone from ordinary space into holy space. There will be judgment for that, for not coming into the presence of the Lord with the right attitude, with the right heart. You've tried to clothe yourself. You've tried to provide for yourself outside of this covenant relationship You've skipped over the threshold, and there will be punishment. That's going to happen on the day of the Lord, because Israel has not been exclusive in their relationship with Yahweh. What do we learn about the Lord from this passage? We learn that the Lord is exclusive, and there are consequences for breaking the exclusivity of that relationship. Well, what do we... What do we learn about the gospel? How does this remind us of the truth of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us? 
As I mentioned, the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy comes in 587 BC and the people of Judah are carried off into exile. It's a just punishment. They get what they deserve in that regard. Look at verse 7. Indeed, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. In the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy, of this passage, Israel is the prepared sacrifice. The people of Judah in Jerusalem are the consecrated guests. They're being set apart for something the Lord is going to do, and he does it in 587 BC when Babylon comes and carries them off. That's the immediate fulfillment of this. Let me make an important statement here about these prophecies. God's announcement of judgment in Zephaniah, in Haggai, in any of the prophets, major or minor, is not intended to be punitive. It's intended to be corrective. God announces the coming of this judgment so that his people would turn back to faithfulness in their relationship with the Lord. He longs for them to repent. And the carrying out of this judgment has the same end in view. They're disciplined for the sake of obedience. Micah Fries, a commentator on the book of Zephaniah, says it this way. The intent of the declaration, as we will see at the end of the book, is not to terrify them into cowering before God. It's not to punish them for what they have done. God is not lashing out in uncontrolled anger or sadistically dispensing judgment. The reminder of the coming day of judgment was intended to provoke them to remember their place as his chosen ones and to repent and to return to faithful obedience. The people don't do that. And so in 587, judgment comes. Zephaniah heard this word of the Lord, this prophecy, and he trembled at it. The people of Israel, the Judah, the people of Judah, they heard this and they were ambivalent toward it. And we're going to see that next week. We hear of this and it's kind of hard for us to fathom because we, we really only think of God in terms of love and we kind of exclude the fact that he's just and that it's okay for him to be just. Jesus knows of this judgment, both its immediate and its future. And in response to that future judgment, Jesus says, I will go. I will take that just judgment upon myself. And so in Jesus, there's been a satisfaction of the demands of the future day of the Lord. That's what this tells us about the gospel. In Jesus, we have a gracious extension of unmerited love. In Jesus, we see a complete substitution in absorbing the Lord's justice. In Jesus, we see a full availing or making available the blessings of God's mercy. He was, verse 7, prepared as a sacrifice on our behalf. He was, verse 7, consecrated, set apart for that purpose. By faith in Him, you can be set apart for holiness on your future day of judgment, at the great day of the Lord. Ultimately, Christ has died in order to make it possible that when you step into the presence of the Lord at that moment of judgment on the great day of the Lord, you will not need to clothe yourself with anything else because you'll be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Jesus and his work on the cross has made it so that when you step into the presence of the Lord on that great day and you face judgment, you won't need to skip over the threshold into the holiness of who God is because you will be brought in by Jesus Christ and you will stand there covered in his blood, totally clean. There's been a satisfaction of the demands of the day of the Lord. And that means this. 
that Jesus has removed all of our uncertainty. We can know with complete assurance what awaits us on the day of the Lord. There's no reason to wonder about it. You can settle that account right here, right now, today, because there is level footing at the base of the cross. Kings, celebrities, the rich, the poor, the healthy, the sick, those who think they're moral and upright, and those who realize that they've been wildly sinful find equal footing at the base of the cross where they can have their sin forgiven and their judgment absorbed by Jesus Christ. We go to him and we get clothed in righteousness. We go to him and we're humbly carried into the presence of the Lord. We don't skip over the threshold. We can celebrate that mercy has been extended, that grace has been given in the person of Jesus Christ, that justice has been absorbed on the cross and that blessing can be received by grace grace through faith. That can be made yours today, but you've got to receive it. God's grace is extended, but it has to be received by faith in Jesus Christ. That is exclusive. There's only one way for that to happen. And it's by placing all of your hope, all of your trust, the fullness of what you believe will bring you satisfaction, what you believe will bring you security, and resting it upon Jesus Christ and his work for you on the cross. You can't introduce anything else into that and think that in your moment of judgment, you will be saved. Matthew 6, 24 says this, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Insert whatever idol you want at the end of that. You can't serve both. Your heart can't do it. You try to serve that other thing instead of the Lord, there will be just judgment. You try to serve that other thing and the Lord at the same time, there will be just judgment. You turn away from the Lord entirely and you think that you're the ultimate source of your own meeting and your own hope, there will be just judgment. The good news is that Jesus died and that that can capture our hearts. Brian typically defines worship as a response to who God is, what God has done, and what God will do. And so the question this morning is, what do you live in response to? That's part of how you can figure out what, is there an idol in your heart? What is the thing that you worship? Well, what do you live in response to? What directs your decision making? What is it that helps you decide what you're going to do in any given moment? Is it your relationship with the Lord or is there something else in there? And if there's something else, it's got to be rooted out. If you're a note taker, jot down Hebrews 12, 1 to 12. I'm going to move through the end of this very quickly, but you can go back and read that passage of scripture because I think it gives us a picture of what it is that we can do if the Lord illuminates to us that there is some idol in our hearts. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside, yours might say cast aside or throw off every hindrance. Step one, is get rid of that idol. Take it seriously. Shatter it. Break it. Annihilate it. Do some Josiah kind of work. Take that thing outside and burn it and get rid of the ashes because you cannot have it and Jesus and think that you have Jesus. Say that again. You cannot have that thing and Jesus and think that you have Jesus. If you invite something else into the exclusivity of that relationship, you negate it. Cast it off. 
And then what do you do once you've done that? Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes. Yours might say fixing our eyes on Jesus. You fix your eyes on the cross. You allow your heart to be continually captured by what Jesus Christ has done in your place. And when you're tempted to look to your idol, you instead turn your eyes to the cross. When you're tempted to look to something else to give you ultimate worth or satisfaction or significance or meaning, you instead turn your heart and your eyes to Jesus Christ on the cross and see the ways that he has perfectly met every need or every desire that some idol falsely promises to you. He's met them completely and he's made them available to you by his death on the cross. And then number three, be unrelenting. Look down at verse 12. If you're there, if not, make a little note. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. Be unrelenting about it. Keep going. Press deeper. Figure out what that idol is and cast it off. Get rid of it. Annihilate it. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And when you don't think you can do that any longer and you're tempted to look back at that idol, strengthen yourself. Pray for the Holy Spirit to give you the power to look again to Jesus instead of looking to that other thing. Amen? We're going to spend some time in worship here. I don't know where they are. There they are. Um, we're going to sing a couple of songs here but the first one is uh, what a beautiful name and there's a bridge you have no rival you have no equal now and forever God you reign that is absolutely true and we sing that in joy and we should proclaim it loudly and boldly here this morning when we sing it but it needs to be true at the deepest level of your heart that you look to the cross and you see Jesus Christ there and your heart proclaims there is no rival to that. There is no equal. The Lord is exclusive. He wants exclusivity in relationship and you can't invite anything else in. But the good news is that Jesus Christ and faith in him has made it so we need no uncertainty in our day of the Lord. Because by faith, We can receive God's grace and know that we will go into the presence of the Lord on that day clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we will spend eternity in his presence. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.